At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. There was just this crystal moment in my mind of being like, I don't actually know what any of this stuff is. At one point, the authorities came and I was whisked upstairs and pushed into a locker. <laughs> We've learned empathy and also that we need to cry our way out of situations. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Burnt Toast from Food52.com, a podcast about what we all chat about in the office, but that doesn't make it onto the website. I'm Amanda Hesser, one of the co-founders of Food52, and I'm here with our managing editor, Kenzie Wilbur. Hello. And our guest, Peter Meehan, who's the founder of Lucky Peach. And the person who has lost more rounds of the piglet than any other cookbook <laughs> author or co-author going so far. And today we're going to talk about first food jobs. Yeah, because, I mean, we all have to start somewhere. And a lot of us who didn't end up in food media still started in food, so it's something that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I thought that it's a cool topic because there are so many points of entry to get into food or food media and so many endpoints, but I don't think that that is obvious when you are starting out. And maybe it's different now for a younger generation when there's a, a bigger, wider food world to get into. But I know my, my first official food job where I was given American dollars for the handling or interaction with food was at a coffee shop <laughs> a half a block from my house where I grew up in Chicago. And I was like a pimply-faced 14 or 15 or 16-year-old who didn't know anything about food and was probably like a walking food service violation. <laughs> like I have three memories. It's in a space that my mom and my grandmother once had a needlepoint store in. And after it closed, it was taken over by Laurel McMahon and she opened McMahon's Cafe. And they had coffee and sandwiches and pastries. And I was a counter boy there and, you know, had to do a little light sandwich bar work. And the like the three things I remember are these donuts. They would come in these big boxes. I was always surprised today. You know, it was like a sheet pan mm -hmm. size box with these chocolate frosted donuts. And I ate so many of those that I wasn't supposed to eat, but I just ate them all day long. It just really destroyed her profit margin and probably her business eating her donuts. I remember <laughs> the delivery of sandwich ingredients because uh, <clears throat> we had to make egg salad. And it was just a big bucket of hard-boiled eggs in brine, peeled hard-boiled, you know, like a wow. like a Halloween thing, like you would wow. have to plunge your hand into. And we made like blindfolded and yeah, figure yeah. out what's Wait, in what the was bucket. that for? Like Oof. instead of boiling your own wow. eggs, buy pre-boiled eggs. So um, clearly, you know, when you write about food now, and when you launch Lucky Peach, you I were thinking about that those eggs. Yeah, uh, food didn't mean anything to me then, and I had an. I went from there to like a busboy job later. And that's where I saw, like, the first kitchen. You know, the guys in the kitchen had the food. So if you wanted fried chicken fingers on your salad, you had to be nice to them. And they also had access to the booze room, which even as a 17-year-old I knew was, like, a good place to be. So that's when I started thinking that cooking was cool and then went briefly to college and dropped out and moved to New York. And that was when food started to become a thing in my life. And at that point, I thought that you could either be a chef 
or a restaurant critic. I thought that those were like, it was like mm-hmm. a cartoon. It was like less nuanced than Ratatouille conception of what jobs there were in food media. And I remember reading Michael Rollman's book, the one about going to CIA, which I think was his first in that series. And I was like, oh no, I will not be able to cut that mustard. I'm a small, weak man. So I will become a restaurant critic instead of becoming a chef. And then I then I did that. So that's all it takes. And then you're done. It, that you thought there was restaurant critic and like chef or whatever, you know, these like very small delineated opportunities makes a lot of sense. Because I think that like back then, like professional writers wrote, you know, we didn't ask farmers to write about their chickens or we didn't ask yet. And now we do. So it, that or has chefs changed. To write, or write chefs about to write. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe it was also on some level, like, kind of like a superhero vision of what the food world is like. But as I started to look for employment, because I was a college dropout in New York City and I needed to have money, the first job I ended up getting in the industry that I'm still in now was at Food and Wine magazine as an event planning intern for their annual event, the Food and Wine Magazine Classic at Aspen. They had always had girls from BU as interns, and I guess that year was just a bumper crop of (laughs) terrible BU girls, and none of them got the job. So my friend was interning at Food and Wine. He was an NYU journalism student, and he hated it. He wanted to be writing for Out Magazine. He quit shortly after, but he got me an interview there, and I was like 20-year-old aspiring food nerd, which I think was a rarer commodity back then. That Absolutely. Someone could come in and, 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 and speak with a certain amount of fluency about chefs and food and have opinions about things. So they hired me, and I worked on that. That was my immersion into what the food world was. I saw what like special projects managers were and like the four guys who just sit there and massage numbers to make circulation seem good. And you know, like and you were sold. Yeah, and I was oh, you know, <laughs> but I, I did anything I could do to walk across to the other part of the building and go talk to the editorial staff. Yep. And there was like this like Cold War frosty disdain for anyone from the publishing side. But you know, I eventually found like a couple people to be nice to me over there and, and got a look at that. But now you do both. Now yeah. Uh, how did I get? How so did you, I get so you sent got, back you got your Jekyll and Hyde? Just, yeah, apparently yeah. I I did something wrong along the way. <laughs> Amanda, did you ever have an internship in a food media company? Or I did not have uh, an internship in a food media. You company, arrived but fully I did formed, of... didn't you? You just appeared <laughs> just... at the New York Times, and <laughs> after, as rumor has it, years of bartending. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's right. I um, I went to college and studied finance, and so for my summer job, I was thinking about like, well, how can I make a lot of money for the summer? And so I heard that you can make a lot of money bartending. And being kind of a nerd, I was like, well, I can't, like, I don't really drink that much. I just drink beer. And um, I don't really know anything about cocktails. So I better go to bartending school. (laughs) So I went to Boston Bartending School and I got my certificate. And at that point, like... What is the scene at a bartending school? Like, who is the crowd who is getting educated? Kind of like Friday guys, I would say. That was sort of my memory. But, you know, I was really focused on my studies. In school, you're not using actual foods. You're just using, like, colored liquids. Oh, really? But to me, that's all it was anyhow, because, (laughs) like, I was like a martini. You end up with something that's kind of clear, sometimes a little cloudy. So I was just memorizing numbers and, like, proportions without any appreciation or even sense of, like, what it should taste like. How did you know? Yeah, exactly. I just, like, memorized and so I got my certificate, and then I, like, wrote a resume on, like, nice paper stock paper. And I showed up at the best restaurant in my town, which was called Fallsport, which was um, opened by two people from Brooklyn. And they, like, <laughs> mistakenly thought that Holly, Pennsylvania was cool or going to be cool. And um, 
like, you know, I really like to apply for the bartending job. And he kind of laughed at me because you, you could be a bartender before you were of drinking age, which was strange. Kind of slim pickings in Holly, Pennsylvania. So he hired me. And then <laughs> the first night I'm, I'm on duty, this couple from New York comes in and they said to me, so what do you got on draft? And I said, what's draft? <laughs> because I knew the term tap, like what's on tap, but I didn't know what a draft was. And they uh, thought that was incredibly charming and left me a $10 tip. Wow. Um, wow. But soon after that, like my family and friends came in and it took me like 10 minutes to make a martini. And my boss kind of was starting to pick up on this, that there was a, like a long, You were long like sometimes clear, a little cloudy. <laughs> yeah. I think so I got it. He pulled, he liked me though. I think because I had a good attitude and he just pulled, eventually pulled me over and was like, you know, have you ever waited tables? And I was like, nope, <laughs> but I'll try. Bartending was not a long-lived experience, despite my certificate. Your, your formal education. Yes. Great. Yeah, I remember I tried to, I applied for a waiting job in between high school and, and moving to New York. And I remember going in, and it was in an Italian restaurant. The guy asked me all these questions about Italian wine. And I'm fairly certain that I had never consumed wine at that point in my life. But it was one clue that, like, wine was this thing that I needed to learn about if I wanted to be able to make money in that world. I too served wine long before I had actually consumed it. I served wine before it was legal. I was serving wine in restaurants when I was 16 years old. And I think that I was hired and I, maybe like four months later, they were like, wait a minute. And I was like, I gave you my social security card and my license. You know how young I am. But it was extraordinarily illegal um, what I was doing. <laughs> but I poured a lot of bottles of wine to people before I really knew what it tasted like. How did you, le how did you <laughs> learn about wine? Did you, have you learned about wine? A little bit. I was, it's working in restaurants. It's like pretending you know what you're talking about and then tasting, tasting, tasting and trying to remember it. For me, it was when I moved to New York, we were all underage. Uh, Hannah went to art school, my wife, and we all ate at each other's houses and cooked. And I had the hookup at the wine store. Like the dudes thought I was cool. So they let me buy, even though I was underage and we all knew it. So <laughs> I always bought these liter and a half bottles of Sangiovese for like $9 a pop. It was, you know, it seemed good at the time. There was just this crystal moment in my mind of being like, I don't actually know what any of this stuff is. I know this one bottle that we think is good and we can afford. <laughs> yep. So I took this whole like educating myself about wine thing like super seriously. And I ended up taking like the Kevin's Raley Windows on the World course and all that stuff. And in that era when I thought there were restaurant critics and chefs that I could become a wine writer. So I went super deep down the rabbit hole. There was a point when I could tell you like schist and shale in, in different wow. river valleys in Germany. And I got to a point where I realized that the guys at the wine spectator or wherever, like the top wine critics, only give up their positions when they die from cirrhosis. And until then, they are never moving. And it's still true. Like the guys at the wine spectator today are the same people who were writing for them, you know, like 17 years ago or something. It's also that idea of self-education. You know, these days there, you know, there's NYU food studies. There are food writing programs at colleges all over the place these days. There weren't even when I was in school, which wasn't that long ago. But like when you both have written about advice for future food writers, you say, save your money. Don't go to journalism school. Don't go to cooking school. Do something else. Do anything else. It seems like you both followed your own advice on that front. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we did. There was really only professional education for food-related 
things. There wasn't the breadth and variety of things that are out there now. I mean, I remember most of the people, when I took that Windows on the World class, were professionals, you know, were people from the trade or they were just like banker dudes who needed to figure out how to spend their money more effectively online and we're going to take that class to do it. Well, yeah, there. I mean, there were schools, like if you wanted to become a chef. I, I sort of resisted them because I felt like they, they sort of put you on this very structured path. And like the only way to kind of have a independent path was to just go your own way. And the thing that's wonderful like about the food world is that especially in restaurants, anyone can kind of just hop in. Like as long as you're like willing and able, mm-hmm. you can get a chance, mm-hmm. which is really unusual in many careers if you think about it. And do you think it's still that way? Yeah, I do. I mean, maybe less so at the highest end, like the finest restaurants, but I do think so. In fact, I don't get the sense that like most cooks in in good kitchens in New York have gone have a cooking school degree, do you? No, but I think it is I think it's harder to jump in in like a Manhattan scene where there's no sure. there's no space for humans to begin with than it mm-hmm. is probably in other places where there's like just physically a little bit more room to accommodate somebody who's not going to be pulling their own weight for a little while. But I know Sam Henderson, this woman who is the chef de cuisine of uh, WD-50, worked at Scholastic in book publishing (laughs) and walked in off the street and was like, I'll help peel potatoes. And they were like, we don't peel a lot of potatoes here, but come on in. And and over the course of like eight years, she went from not knowing the difference between parsley and cilantro when she came in to being, you know, completely versed in everything that that Wiley does in his kitchen. Not even just restaurants, like people just you know, with no cooking education or starting food businesses. It's like much more liberated now. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. So I have this story about how I started working at Food 52, and it is that I emailed Food 52 maybe once a month for a solid eight months. So I was like, you know what? I, I got I to gotta pick something else. Um, emailed once more and got an email back two days later. Who did you email? Editors at, man. <laughs> just, at, just Editors at. Editors at every single time. And this is one of my first food jobs. The first mm-hmm. editorial job I got was when I quit working in PR, I had a few good, con- like people I'd had good times with or good contacts with and I didn't know what I was doing. So I just emailed them to be like, hey, today's my last day. I don't know what I'm doing. I quit with no job or plans. And one of them was this guy, Peter Elliott, who was at Bloomberg. He was just happened to be starting work on this biography of Sirio Maggioni. And he's like, would you be interested in doing transcription? I needed to do anything for money at the time. So I did. And I showed up to his apartment. He handed me a bunch of tapes. He's like, I need these as fast as possible. And he left, just figure it out. And it's Ciro Maccioni, like whose unintelligible Italian accent for, it ended up transcribing like 75 hours of, but it was, uh, <laughs> but it ended up, and then the, the, you know, they needed recipes for the book. So I ended up doing the recipe development and writing for it. So that was my first opportunity to do that. And even though it seems like this kind of menial thing of just listening and typing, it ended up being this amazing education in the history of New York restaurants that I couldn't have gotten any other way. And I couldn't have heard so many people being like intimate and honest and hearing everything that's on the cutting room floor from all these chefs and restaurateurs who've been part of the Le Cirque world if I hadn't ended up working on that, that book. So it is that thing of just being open and making contacts and being like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, you have to do whatever for like the first decade. Yeah. So what came next? Well, so I, yeah, I had like a bunch of kind of short and kind of nutty jobs. So while I was in college. Where did uh, you go to college? 
I went to Bentley University, which you probably have never heard of. No. I wanted to get into the food world, and so I, this was post-bartending and waitressing, and um, so I just like pinpointed my favorite restaurants in Boston and then wrote letters to them, and one was to Jody Adams uh, at what was then called Michaela's, uh, now Rialto, and I just said, you know, I'll do anything. I just would love to be in your kitchen, and somehow, like, on my resume, I, I put that I loved rollerblading, and that's what caught her eye. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> She's like, that's cool. I think she rollerbladed too. And Resume so, writers take note. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so like I got that. So it was like my first um, exposure to a, like a real urban, well-regarded kitchen. And it was a kitchen that was dominated by women, actually, which was unusual. And it was a very civilized kitchen. On the line like was Suzanne Goen and you know various other people kind of were making their way through that kitchen at the time because it was one of the better restaurants in Boston. Like, I have to say it was like a such a soft entry into kitchen life it was definitely not like Tony Bourdain material oh yeah like I plated dishes I like I strained stocks I ran and got butter for the line cooks I just did whatever you know I was just so delighted to be there and then I also worked in Cambridge at a what was like an early like good bakery called Panini and so and it was such a small bakery that I would do this on Saturday nights which tells you a lot about my social life in college but um I would get there at, I think it was like nine, and then we would literally like mix the dough, let it rise, shape it, bake it. I would pack it into bags, and then I would drive a truck around Boston at like 5 a.m. to all the like top restaurants and hotels. It was actually like an amazing job because also I got to like peek into all the best kitchens, and it was like this very concentrated education. After college, I um, I worked at Bread Alone for a summer, and then I went to Europe, and I worked in, like, four different countries there. And, like, I had a lot of strange jobs, including in Germany, I worked at this um, bakery where I, I lived above the bakery, and the owner of the bakery was a big hunter. And so he kept all of his taxidermy bears and, like, exotic animals in the room that I stayed in. So, like, <laughs> if I, I would, and I would wake up to the sound of the oven going on. It was, like, this big, like like kind of deep rumble so it would wake me up around four and it's because I was always like discombobulated I like often like trip over the bear head (laughs) like as I'm like stumbling to get my clothes on and go downstairs to the bakery and there I worked with like 40 men you know rolling pretzels and the bakery owner was uh he had quite the temper and he was known for if he got mad at you he would hit hit people with baguettes um (laughs) which isn't like the toughest weapon but it was a little weird did you ever get hit with a baguette i did not i was like i was gonna follow every rule (laughs) have you ever seen amanda roll a pretzel it's kind of a thing of beauty it it, like flips up in the air and does this like spinny thing and it lands in like this perfect pretzel shape can i see that on periscope (laughs) i still don't know what periscope is so I, I'm curious about more of the Europe part because I think there's this expectations versus reality thing. Like I, I dreamt oh. of like picking beets in Alsace or something. I don't even know if they, they grow beets in Alsace, but like I'm sure that's backbreaking. I'm sure it's really hard. I mean, I did the grape harvest and I lasted three days. It was in France, in Burgundy, basically. We, we, I stayed in a bed that literally had a straw mattress. And <laughs> I was so sore that I was crying. And after three days, I was like... I'm sorry, but I, you know, I've got to go. I, you know, something has come up. <laughs> I got to get back to get my other job. <laughs> in my in my like wine phase, I went to Santa Barbara. My my wife's grandmother lives there, and I was going to try to work the harvest. And I went there, you know, in the fall. I mean, I picked a few single grapes, but I never did like a day in the field because the thing 
they knew what maybe your winemaker didn't, which is that like <laughs> dumb middle class white kids like showing up in your vineyard are not ready to well, for like the truth of the harvest. Like that it's like backbreaking labor, like twelve hours. Well, a day. yeah, and I was sort of like frustrated. I was like, why didn't I do my research and like do a harvest where it's like the grapes are grown at like they're a little higher up? <laughs> These were like so a, low to like the a ground. Vineyard <laughs> yes, or something. Totally. You could have. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you were like crunched over, and all the like regular workers are just kicking your butt. They are like five rows ahead of you. So you just, you're aching and, and you just feel like terrible about yourself because you're but, like, I am yeah. such a loser. I was like, I'm really I have always lived in cities. I remember like the first day I like bailed hay and put it in a barn and like the next day I couldn't move anymore. Sure. You know, I was a broken man. What is it about doing a wine harvest that's so romantic sounding that I, I spent an entire summer researching vineyards out in California to go pick grapes at? What is it about, like, I'm going to go pick grapes. I'm going to get, like, close to the land and write poetry about it. What is it? Because you're I... dumb and young. And you don't <laughs> no. realize... I wasn't attracted to the romance. Like, I like manual labor. Like, I like doing that kind of stuff. But I didn't realize how just like, three days of it ill-equipped right. I was for it. <laughs> no, but I actually wanted to experience, like, what does it take to get wine on the table? Which is why, like, I actually am so glad I worked in restaurants because it is hard work. I liked that sort of, like, getting the blood, sweat, and tears of, like, mm -hmm. behind the food world. And I actually feel like... It later helped me with my writing because I felt like I had empathy, you know, when, especially when I was writing about, like, you know, chefs or restaurants or anybody who was making food. But I have to say I do have a regret, which was that – so after I worked in Germany, I moved to Switzerland. And somebody had helped me kind of, like, hook me up with different, like, kind of – I had said, like, I wanted to work in, like, artisanal bakeries. And so the person who drove me from Germany to Switzerland – you know, Switzerland's it's like drop dead gorgeous. But we managed to be like heading towards this very kind of like wartime factory building in this small town. And he keeps getting closer and he's like, Yeah, we're almost there and I'm just like in my head, I'm like, This this isn't happening, is it? And <laughs> he pulls into the parking lot and he says, Well, we're here. It was literally a bread factory in the middle of Switzerland. Wow. And I was supposed to spend like the next two to three months there. And so as he's taking me on around a tour, and okay, let's just, it's a little embarrassing because I was young and naive and also um, maybe a little immature. I just started crying. <laughs> because, Power move. Because Power I move. thought, how am I going to like spend the next three months here? My German was really like weak. And so, and then he just got panicked because he was like, this American girl, what? I don't know how to she's, handle you. She's bawling in the middle of the factory. <laughs> So I cried my way out of that situation, did end up in an artisanal bakery the next day. But now I look back and I think, God, I should have worked at that factory. So we've learned empathy and also that we need to cry our way out of situations. <laughs> That's how to get ahead. Yes. I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you've both worked in food service. Any stories about sort of the seedy underbelly, back of the house stuff that like you wouldn't want the customers dining in the restaurant to know or, you know, the food service violations of you sticking your unwashed hands into the egg salad container. I, was, I'm, I still am a compulsive hand washer. I feel like people in kitchens, they don't generally like disgusting conditions either because it's what they work in. I mean, I, I never had the misfortune of working in a place with like a bad back of house scene. Um, well, I wouldn't say like bad back of house scene, but definitely different like standards. So I worked at this place in France. It was actually a one-star restaurant. You know, the kitchen was generally clean, but like uh, the kitchen was populated mostly by like very young kids who, you know, it's kind of like, you know, in France, you're either going to go the college route or you're going to 
work in a kitchen or with a trade. It's more of a trade. You're going to work with your hands. Thank you. Yes. And so a lot of those kids didn't had like zero interest in food, and you know they're working at the very fine restaurant. And so I did work a pastry station where after (laughs) the guy would um, scoop ice cream, he would just put the spoon in his mouth and then he would reuse it. That was that was a little (laughs) tough. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't really know how to explain this to you but I'm not going to eat your ice cream. But that was also a place where at one point the authorities came and I was whisked upstairs and pushed into a locker. <laughs> see, that's when I would start crying, being shoved into a locker. Thankfully, but, I wasn't See, that's why Hesser wins, because there's no angle in crying when you're already in the locker. you got to cry when you're in the Nobody bakery and you want to get you. out. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Strategic crying, not just, you know, wanton crying. <laughs> After covering that crying is important and that meeting people is important and emailing them and being willing to do anything, like, what's the what's the, the takeaway now? Because we've both been in this game for so long that things have changed. I mean, there is Food 52, which didn't exist. There's Lucky Peach, which didn't exist when we were coming up. What do you see as being different now versus when we were starting out? Well, there's so many more jobs. Like, there's so many more things you can do and that are kind of, like, widely accepted. Like, you can work on a farm, and it's cool. It's not, like, an odd misstep in your career. You know, you can study pickles. You can, like, dive deep in, like, an area of interest that I think it was, like, much harder to do, don't you think? I actually think, I mean, given how much has evolved in the jobs that are available and the things that you can do in this industry now, not that much has changed, I think, in how to be successful in it. I mean, we're surrounded by now graduate programs in food and and all of these official ways you can get your certificate. Um, but really, you need to be willing to do whatever. You need to be good at emailing people. Um, and you, you need to be like willing to try stuff. I, th- I think still looking at resumes and reading them now, I would rather have someone with an interesting experience and background than like a you know, cum laude at NYU Food Studies. It's funny because we were just talking about this the other day uh, in the office, and we never look at where, where someone went to school. We look for people who've done interesting things. I did a talk at Yale, and afterwards I met a lot of the people who were there, and they're obviously all, like, smarter than me and talented and focused. But there was one kid who had had surgery for, like, his Crohn's disease, like, the day before and I guess was really shy and was possibly out of his mind on painkillers and left the hospital to come to the talk and meet me afterwards. And the event organizer told me about that after I had met him. And he spoke Chinese and took photographs. And I'm like, that dedication, you know, like, the fact that someone's going to do yeah. that, like, mm-hmm. I don't care that you went to Yale. I don't yeah. care that you speak yeah. Chinese. I mm-hmm. care that you want something you're interested enough that you're going to you're going to follow it that way. So yeah. that's always the thing that I look for in the people that we're hiring is just that it's the thing that they want to do more than anything else. And then I feel like opportunities open up for people with that level of interest and commitment. It's the whole fire in the belly thing. Like that needs to exist first and foremost and then, you know, whatever else falls into place. And I also do think that being an economist or teaching yourself code and dropping out of a PhD program in philosophy, which a couple of our developers at Food52 have done, makes you more interesting in the food world. Thanks for having me and bringing back all those wonderful memories of the hard-boiled eggs and the <laughs> chocolate <for> donuts. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. It was awesome to learn about them. So that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at Food52, and you can email us at editors at food52.com. If you like the show, tell everyone you know and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have any first food job stories or photos, we want to know about them. So Instagram them and hashtag them with the name of our podcast, Burnt Toast. That's B-U-R-N-T-T-O-A-S-T, and we're going to regram our favorites. 
For Peter Meehan and Kenzie Wilbur, I'm Amanda Hesser. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for